Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. If you'd like to join the conversation, I would encourage you to do so. Just dial up on your telephone, 801-331-8113, and we'll have a grand old time. Yeah, I used to do it like the Flintstones theme, but uh, ever since the word gay kind of got hijacked, it just hasn't sounded the same. Hey, we're going to have a gay old time today on Loving Liberty. Somebody would say, it's cultural appropriation, Brian. Not cool. Well. I guess it is what it is. So, got a lot of different stuff to talk about here. Let's uh, let's see. What shall we discuss today? Um, there's a great article by Lawrence Vance on LewRockwell.com, The Problems with Republicans and Conservatives. I know. You're like, really, Brian? You're going to criticize Republicans and conservatives, considering you probably have more of them in your audience than anything else? Um, it's It's worth hearing. It really is. And it's, it's not just, you know, well, they disagree. It's, it's more like um, pointing out some of the inconsistencies. For instance, let's go ahead and let's just dive in, shall we? Let's, let's go there. And if the ice is cracking under my feet, I guess I'll just do my best to not get too far out in the middle of the lake here. Lawrence Vance points out Republicans and conservatives have a problem. And it's a blind spot that unfortunately affects uh, a lot of them. Now, it's also a correctable problem. For instance, PBS is indoctrinating our kids, says Representative Doug Lamborn. He's a Republican out of Colorado. PBS recently aired an episode of the children's show Arthur, which featured and celebrated a same-sex wedding. Lamborn says it's time to stop sending our hard-earned tax money to support programming that is objectionable to many Americans. And he's introduced a bill to cut off all federal funding for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which funds... PBS parents and churches should be the ones discussing marriage and family with their children, not PBS, says Lamborn. Responsible fatherhood programs continue to hold the promise of expanding the emotional, educational, financial and other resources millions of children need to thrive. So says Matt Weidinger, a fellow resident, a resident fellow rather in poverty studies at the American Enterprise Institute. Now, the federal government spends over seventy five million dollars per year. On fatherhood programs. Many federal departments have initiatives and programs supporting responsible fathers and fatherhood in the community, including the departments of agriculture, commerce, HHS, H- or HUD, rather, uh, justice, labor, and veterans affairs. But, to, but despite the proliferation of programs, very few rigorous evaluations have been done to test their effectiveness, says Whitinger who concludes, given the stakes for family and children, it is well worth continuing current efforts while also striving to determine which are the most effective. Then you have Thomas Philipson, a member of President Trump's Council of Economic Advisors, who says, quote, government job training programs appear to be largely ineffective and fail to produce sufficient benefits for workers to justify the costs. Now, according to the White House, There were more than 40 federal worker training programs spread across nine different agencies, serving more than 10 million Americans in the 2017 fiscal year. Yet, most federal job training programs produced insufficient data to be clearly evaluated. 
and the ones that were studied weren't producing the desired results. So Phillipson suggests that the government should be looking for ways to subsidize private programs or create private-public partnerships. One more. Jessica Trisco Darden, a Gene Kirkpatrick Kirkpatrick Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, says the United States must ensure that American taxpayer-funded relief reaches those most in need. Now, Darden reports that since January of 2015, the U.S. AID's Office of the Inspector General, an independent agency tasked with monitoring U.S. foreign assistance, has documented more than 350 allegations of fraud, theft, and armed group involvement, bribery, and other issues involving U.S. aid in Iraq and Syria alone. And Darden concludes it's time for everyone to acknowledge that without better oversight and management of humanitarian assistance, their well-intentioned work may go to waste or worse, prolong the very crises this aid is intended to ameliorate. Okay, so there's a number of different people making some very, I think, factual statements. But here's the problem. And Lawrence Vance spells it out. He says Republicans and conservatives have a problem. But in spite of what they say about government television stations or government fatherhood programs, government job training programs, government foreign aid, their problem is not with government television stations, government fatherhood programs, government job training programs, and government foreign aid. And he says the existence of these and other programs of the federal of the federal government goes largely unnoticed by Republicans and conservatives until some government agency gives an organization a grant for some ludicrous study. Some egregious liberal bias is revealed or exceptionally pornographic art exhibit is funded or some colossal waste is discovered. And he says they're missing the point here that the federal government should not have a corporation for public broadcasting. It should not have fatherhood programs or job training programs. And foreign aid is rarely, if ever, this is rarely, if ever, pointed out. None of these things should even exist under the auspices of the government. His point being that despite their mantra of limited government, federalism, fidelity to the Constitution, individual freedom, private property, free markets, traditional values, and free enterprise... Republicans and conservatives have no philosophical objection to any government program as long as it's run efficiently, doesn't waste too many taxpayer dollars or furthers some right wing agenda like abstinence education. Can you see the inconsistency he's pointing out here? Republicans and conservatives are statists, just like Democrats and progressives. They all believe that the federal government should take money from some Americans and redistribute it to American and foreign individuals, groups, organizations, and businesses after it's filtered through a massive government bureaucracy in the form of subsidies, vouchers, loans, EBT cards, grants, and cash payments. In other words, for all the talk about, uh, well, we're against socialism, There's a distinct preference for Republican-flavored socialism or collectivism among a lot of Republicans and conservatives. And what Lawrence Vance is saying here is when conservatives get enough Republicans elected to gain control of Congress, like during the last six years of Clinton's presidency and during the last two years of Obama's presidency, or when Congress and the White House, like during the, or when they control Congress and the White House, like during the four-plus years of Bush's presidency and the first two years of Trump's presidency, 
they not only do absolutely nothing of substance to reverse the progressive policies enacted by the Democrats, but they often increase their funding, expand them, and supplement them with new progressive policies of their own, albeit Republican-flavored. His point is the Republican and conservative ideal of limited government is a government limited to control by Republicans free to carry out a conservative agenda. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't folks within earshot going, well, yeah, but that's okay. And to that, I would have to ask you, why is that okay? Because it's your guy that's in charge? I mean, look, what, what good are principles? If you can safely set them aside when it's to your political advantage. Well, you know, yeah, it's good to have those principles, Brian, but you don't want to be too much of an idealist because uh, when nothing would ever get done. I think consistency is what we're lacking here. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, the Republicans and the conservatives who support these collectivist programs are evil for doing so. I think it's probably something a little bit more benign, but it's still very destructive. They're blind, or at least they're, they're being obtuse, so they don't have to notice. I think back to my conversation yesterday on the Joe Carey Show. I was sitting in for Joe. Suzanne Sherman was uh, guesting with me, and, and she had, had made the comment in an article that she'd written for the Tenth Amendment Center the absolute threshold question, the first thing we should be asking anytime someone brings up, hey, you know, we need a law or we need a policy, something needs to be done in this area, is we should be asking ourselves, is that something government should be doing in the first place? Is there a legitimate, rightful duty or authority on the part of government to even be doing that? But instead, we find ourselves quibbling over, well... We're only going to do it to this extent, whereas the Democrats will do it, you know, that much more than, than we will. Well, if what they're doing is in some way contributing to the ongoing evisceration of our liberties. Does it really matter if someone is trying to make it a little more gentle as they rip the guts out of your liberty? I don't think it does. Now, the big question, how do you get people to consider that? And if necessary, make a course adjustment. I have some ideas on this, but it starts with, I don't think it's going to happen on a mass level. I think it's got to start with individuals who simply have a line in the sand where they say, look, I can't support anybody who doesn't at least understand this. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. 801-331-8113 is the number if you'd like to join the conversation. All right. There is a lot to talk about here. Came across a terrific article um, yesterday. I'm not going to share much with you on this. I, I will tell you it's on, on my Facebook page. I may link it in the show notes just, just for uh, the sake of something interesting to check out. But it, it's about transgenderism. And the thing that makes it amazing is it's it's an article from thepublicdiscourse.com. And it talks about the cracks in the edifice of transgender totalitarianism. It's a very lengthy 
read, but it's extremely worthwhile, and it's very heavy on facts and light on emotion-laden statements, which is important. That's a rare thing whenever this particular topic comes up. But it it examines how we have gone in a very, very short time from where, uh, you know, how many people even heard of transgenderism a couple of years ago? How many how often did you see people really struggling with, you know, so-called gender dysphoria? It was pretty rare. But this uh, this article does a remarkable job of, of laying out how it has threaded its way into the public consciousness and, and how it has captured many of the levers of power in corporate America, in uh, government and within the psychiatric and psychological communities to where now this is becoming you know an imperative. Scientists, doctors, people who we would normally trust because they're they're very interested in the facts are saying with a straight face. Yes, there is no objective way to determine a person's gender simply by biology. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. But it seems to me that several, I don't know, billions of minds, you know, observing and working on difficult questions and answers over the last uh, several thousand years of uh, recorded human history... You would think we would have caught something like this much earlier, right? Unless, of course, it's just a political fad. And the article makes a very strong case that uh, the, the transgender case that radicals have constructed just by, by sheer force of will is starting to fall apart. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying for. Therefore, you know, it's, uh, it's in your interest to, you know, dehumanize or otherwise reject people who struggle with issues of was I a man born in a woman's body or a woman born in a man's body or things like that. I personally know a couple of transgender individuals and I will confess initially it is pretty unsettling. It's uncomfortable because the the perception, what your eyes are telling you when you first see somebody, um, you know, who is trying to appear to be, a, you know, a, a girl trying to appear to be masculine or a, a guy was born male trying to appear to be a woman. It, it, you know, there's there's pretty significant cognitive dissonance. It's like, ah, this doesn't fit. But you get to know these people on an individual basis and you'll discover, first of all, and above all, they are people. Okay, they're not uh, they're not some kind of uh, derelict that needs to be kicked to the curb and shunned by everybody. Now, granted, I only know a very small portion of of, uh, I I know a tiny number of people who personally who are are dealing with these kind of issues. But in each case, there's serious trauma that they have gone through in their lives. And I can't help but wonder if that doesn't contribute so, you know, feel free to disagree with me on this. I, I'm not saying that I've, I've figured out the right way to approach it. I, I don't think I have. If I did, I probably wouldn't, you know, be uncomfortable around transgender people. But this much I am settled on. I have a duty to show them the same love and respect that I would want to be shown by anybody else. It's just simple application of the golden rule. It's not my job to set them right. It's not my job to convince them, hey, you're wrong. It's not my job to make a political statement about, you can't make me call you by your preferred pronoun. My job is to love them as I believe God would want me to love them. 
pray for them, I guess, is, is something else I could do. But, you know, again, my observation is there, there's typically some kind of a trauma or some kind of uh, confusion that, that has caused this to happen in their lives. I, I don't buy for a moment that, you know, all those biology books that we grew up reading in junior high and high school and college were wrong. When they talked about, you know, the, the genders being male and female, at least as it relates to the human species. And I don't say this to be mean, but just as a just as a again, a personal observation, things that go up very, very quickly tend to come down rather quickly as well. So the meteoric rise about, you know, the the, the meteoric rise of, of this particular um transgender issue that's happened rather quickly some would say with astonishing speed i don't think it's here for long term and i just i say that with the understanding that my my idea is i am duty bound not to bring anger not to bring hatred not to bring shame into the equation but that doesn't mean that I have to embrace the agenda and, uh, you know, cast out and reject everything that came before us as wrong and superstitious. So I will include this article in the show notes, the cracks in the edifice of transgender totalitarianism. I think it's a marvelous read, but it's a pretty lengthy one. And it's not just, you know, it, it's not just someone's opinion. There are a lot of good facts that back it up. I think you'd be better informed to read it. I know I felt better informed, and so I, I would recommend it to you. I have shared it on Facebook. If you're friends with me on Facebook, I would encourage you to check it out. It's found on the publicdiscourse.com. There was another article that I came across, and I, I wish I could share more of this, but the, the writer is uh, Kevin Williamson is a remarkable writer, a little crude. There's, there's some language here that would not translate well um, into... You know, broadcasting publicly. So I, I have to kind of choose my words carefully. But he has a terrific essay called a, a Herd Has No Mind. Speaking about mob politics and the decline of reasoned discourse. And I want to share with you a couple of thoughts about this, because when you think about discourse. I don't know if, if you uh, if you ever stop and think about, you know, the discussions that are taking place on social media, that's part of it. What you read, what you discuss around the water cooler at work, this is all part of it. Here's something that he mentions. He says, my subject is what Cor Coriolanus called the beast with many heads, mob politics on social media and in what passes for real life, which increasingly is patterned on social media and its effects on our political discourse and our culture. Now, he says it is the most important political issue of our time, discourse the health and nature of that discourse is a force that exists above and outside the specific policy questions of the day. It's the master issue that will determine how every other issue is talked about and thought about and whether those issues are thought about at all. Here's what he's getting at. We think in language. We signal in memes. Language is the instrument of discourse. Memes are the instrument of anti-discourse. In other words, communication designed and deployed to prevent the exchange of information and perspectives rather than to enable it. 
It's a weapon of mass intellectual destruction, the moron bomb, he calls it. And he says the function of discourse is to know other minds and to make yours known to them. The function of anti-discourse is to lower the status of rivals and enemies because anti-discourse is not a conversation about politics. It is politics. It's no more discourse than a Beethoven Senate sign in your yard is literature. It's a way of holding a conversation captive within politics itself rather than permitting it to get partly clear of the wall and examine the questions of the day from the outside with some degree of clarity and independence. This is worth examining. We're going to come back to this just the other side of news. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We're talking about how a herd has no mind. Excellent article from Kevin Williamson. It's actually kind of an adaptation of an essay from a book that he's written. But he's talking about discourse. And and look, I love a good meme. I actually use them from time to time, you know, and but but I have to admit, I use them exactly as they are intended. Mine isn't intended. Well, this should, you know, elicit some, you know, uh, reasoned and thoughtful, uh, long round roundtable kind of thoughts. No, it's 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 a humorous uh, wisecrack. It's not intended to do anything but uh, <laughs> throw some humor in there and, you know, get a cheap laugh. It's lighting the fuse and running away. But if you want to have discourse, real discourse, that means you've got to be willing to not only know other minds, but you also be, have to be able to make your mind known to them. And think about some of the things that are at stake here. You know, memes are anti-discourse. They prevent discussion. When you're talking about things like war and peace or taxing and spending or crime or punishment or detonating munitions on the heads of goat herders in Panjshir, and you know, it's it, you can't address these in any way that does any real political work without a political culture that only that not only tolerates genuine discourse, meaning genuine disagreement, but also understands what is discourse for. And it's not for petty advantage-seeking, cultural gang sign flashing, and cheap partisan opportunism. But he says we don't have that kind of political culture, or in some ways any culture at all, properly understood. Now I'm going to warn you, he's a little bit blunt in what he says here, but he says what we have is kind of an instant culture. Which is to culture what stevia is to sugar, what masturbation is to sex, what Paul Krugman's New York Times vomitus is to journalism. And what Monday's dank memes are to the English language. A substitute that replicates the real thing in certain formal ways, but that remains nonetheless entirely lacking in the essence of the thing itself. And that's why the desire for popularity is the original sin of the American intellectual. 
When he subordinates his independent mind to the demands of the herd, he ceases to perform any useful function. He abandons culture for instant culture, discourse for anti-discourse, truth-seeking for status-seeking. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one who really needed to hear this, but those words are like a bucket of cold water in the face. And I see it happen. I've seen it happen in my own life. Culture, as Michael Oakeshott characterized it, is about a conversation. As civilized human beings, we are the inheritors neither of an inquiry about ourselves and the world, nor of an accumulating body of information, but of a conversation begun in the primeval forests and extended and made more articulate in the course of centuries. It is a conversation that goes on both in public and within each of ourselves. Look, I don't think it's an accident that the very first volume of the great books of Western civilization is called The Great Conversation. Because it is a conversation that has continued and flowed through the ages. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, throughout the thousands of years of recorded history, and we're talking about 3,500 years just within the canon of Western civilizations, you know, writings. We seem to come back to the same questions over and over again. It's not like, well, you know, Plato discussed this in the Platonic Dialogues, and therefore we can move on. We still struggle with many of those same questions. So it's, it's the conversation that we inherit. And Kevin Williamson says, because it's characterized by crude signaling rather than by conversation as such, instant culture differs from culture properly understood in that it includes no meaningful connections across time, leaving the character of a spasm rather than that of a continuity. It's the Jacobin herd stampeding through G.K. Chesterton's Democracy of the Dead. And like any stampeding herd, it's both terrifying and terrified. A directionless and hysterical moral panic on the digital hoof. Williamson says language is how we think. Culture is where we think. Without culture and language, we're deprived of a means of intellectual and moral orientation and are forced to seek new and necessarily inferior ones. Choosing from a New Jersey diner menu of grossness and insipidity, nationalism, racism, tribalism, class solidarity, religious particularism, intersectionality, which is only mutant nationalism, ideological fanaticism, shallow partisanship, all of them jumbled together by the instruments of instant culture, social media and related internet phenomena, anti-discourse, memory, the, uh, the rituals of electronic tribalism to produce the illiterate, the illiterate and unnavigable guess, mess rather that now passes for our culture politically and our culture at large. He says the question before us is whether the American democracy can think, which would necessitate the rediscovery of rigorous literary language and political culture properly understood or whether we will abandon literacy and content itself with signaling. Kevin Williamson says it will be quite something if we go from John Hancock's extravagant paragraph on Je Thomas Jefferson's concise English masterpiece to signing our names with an X in just a few short centuries. One thinks of those isolated island dwellers who discovered and lost and rediscovered barbed hooks and other technologies a half dozen times over the centuries. People who fail to communicate cannot even preserve their own local memory. 
This much, like like much else, he says, was foreseen by George Orwell, who wrote in 1946, It is clear that the decline of a language must ultimately have political and economic causes. It is not due simply to the bad influence of this or that individual writer, but an effect can become a cause, reinforcing the original cause and producing the same effect in an intensified form, and so on indefinitely. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure, and then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It's rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish. But the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. End quote. See, Orwell made these observations about the bad political writing of his time. But our subliterate culture is well on its way to giving up writing entirely in favor of a crude new instant culture mode of semiotic exchange that amounts to a high-tech version of those old uh, cave paintings. The modern primitive is no less primitive for having a smartphone. Now, the alternative to political discourse, you know, with sentences and stuff, is a hokey luchador wrestling match between the mind-killed partisans grunting modern primitives, talk radio hucksters, hey, cable news hustlers, purveyors of freeze-dried apocalypse lasagnas, and mystical doggy vitamins, associate professors of being pissed off and generally aggrieved, and the sundry of other dumbastical... I won't use the word he uses, who currently dominate our political conversation. A spectacle and a debacle that will go on and on until it doesn't. He says the problem for mass democracy is that the demos do not think. They cannot. It lacks the requisite apparatus. Groups don't think in any meaningful sense. People think one at a time. That is such an excellent point. And it's why mass movements are so often prone to failure. But the real change doesn't take place on a mass level. It starts with individuals. So he says people think one at a time. And Kevin Williamson says, and they exchange thoughts to use one of those expressions so common and shopworn that, it has for, that we've forgotten what it means. The value of such exchange is detectable in its absence. Once, not long ago, the morning headlines were full of John Stewart destroys whatever the target of the comedian had been the night before. But Stewart is gone now. Having grown out his beard and gone off in the wilderness to feed on locusts and wild honey. But there are others. The destroyer always remains with us. Culture is the context in which we think and share our thoughts. It's what makes William Shakespeare or John Milton or Thomas Jefferson alive to us. One unique human mind reaching out to another unique human mind through time, through the medium of English sentences. Something just short of the entirety of popular American political discourse in our time consists of only two primitive sentences. I affiliate with this. I disaffiliate with that. Translated into various kinds of social media idiot grams and post-literate language like so much this, lol, what? That supercut gif of Ray Liotta laughing or a pic of side-eyeing Chloe or you mad troll or Triglypuff. When words themselves, however jumbled or dyspeptically yopped, become too much work for the unsteady minds and deformed souls of 21st century mass so-called culture. This is good stuff. Sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm probably enjoying it more than I should. Again, this is an article from Kevin Williamson. 
A Herd Has No Mind. We'll come back and finish up with it just after these messages. Once again, you are listening to the Loving Liberty program. My name is Brian Hyde, your humble host. Join the conversation, 801-331-8113, if you're so inclined. I've been sharing an article here from Kevin D. Williamson, and this is published on National Review. The title of it is A Herd Has No Mind. And I'm probably enjoying this article more than I should, but at the same time, I'm seeing that, uh, wow, I am guilty of communicating in memes which isn't really having discourse as much as it's throwing, uh, you know, ideological gang signs. As much as I like to think of myself aloof, whoops, I guess that one gives me away there. Dang it. So the idea here being, we have strayed to where political discourse in our time only consists of, look, I affiliate with this or I disaffiliate from that. But we do it through different memes. We do it through different uh, emojis and whatnot. GIFs and so forth. That's what communicates where we stand. And he says, this instant culture is robbing us of opportunities to really contribute something to the great conversation that is going on around us, that has been going on for thousands of years. Okay, with or without us, the conversation continues. The trouble is a lot of us have just limited ourselves to um, not so much contributing to that conversation as just, you know, throwing in the occasional uh, rim shot or something like that to, to assert ourselves. What are we really contributing? Kevin Williamson says, to these rapidly devolving human-shaped things, it's a world of black hats and white hats. The excitable boys and girls on the radio went on and on about how the presidential election in 2016 was binary, which was a way of attempting to sound smart while saying, shut up and get in line, boy, and simultaneously being dumb as hammered goose byproduct. He says, in reality, it is instant culture, our debased substitute for culture itself, that has become neatly binate, being as it is only an instrument in the service of status-seeking with the demands of tribalism everywhere, debasing and squandering the only asset this country, this world, has, the functioning individual mind. You understand what he's saying there? Do you, maybe, maybe I just need to explain this aloud to make sure I'm understanding it. This is not a plea from Kevin D. Williamson, come and join my tribe. It's a plea to stop thinking of yourself in collectivist terms and stop trying to run with the herd and instead value your functioning individual mind. But that's not something any of us can do unless we're willing to put in the work to develop our mind, to develop our own viewpoint, to own our own opinions. I'll have this linked in the, in the, uh, the show notes when I post this for podcast. By the way, Kevin D. Williamson is uh, 
writing a book called The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in an Age of Mob Politics. That's a book I'm probably going to have to find and get my hands on. His language is pretty colorful. Sometimes it's just the other side of vulgar. But his thinking is top notch. And while he has a neat uh, way with words, I think his overall message here is spot on. Some people get really upset when you talk about the herd mentality. I know this because I've pointed it out before. Well, when Brian refers to the masses, he's just implying that the M is silent. (laughs) Yeah, I've said as much before. But I'm appealing to you as an individual and asking you to consider before you before you have to, you know, lay out this is my tribal alliance or here's my allegiance to this group or that group or I vote with this party. But where do you stand? And for that matter, there, there come some questions that uh, I would hope every decent human being asks themselves. At what point would I distance myself from or actually separate myself from the herd? In other words, if the herd, to borrow a phrase from your mother, was all running like lemmings to go jump off a cliff, would you stay with them because it's safer to be seen as in the herd and therefore part of the mainstream? I don't think so. Even the people with whom I may vehemently disagree, who have nonetheless stepped away from the herd and established themselves and, and look, good, bad, or indifferent for who they are, they're honest about where they're coming from. They're honest about what they stand for. More often than not, they're usually in, in the process of learning, even as they go. I can't help but have respect for them. And while I don't necessarily feel contempt for the people who hide within the herd, I feel sorry for them because I think they're missing out on something. And yet I will freely confess there are areas of my life where I want to blend in too. I want to just, you know, don't want to draw too much attention. Too much attention will almost always come with a price. And that price, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn explained, is, you know, to stand for truth is nothing. For truth, you must sit in jail. I don't think he was wrong about that. All right, let's end on a high note here. as we wrap up the show today, story out of Montgomery, Alabama where there is a new law aimed to remove hundreds of barriers and help people released from prisons from prison to get jobs. Rather, the new law stops an occupational licensing board from automatically denying an application based on a criminal conviction. Representative Chris, Chris England from Tuscaloosa said we found that there would be occupations people would get training for and be licensed for while they were in prison. But when they got out, there would be these archaic barriers on the books that would keep them from doing the things they were just trained to do. And England said there were around 700 places that don't allow some people released from prison to get a job. One of the uh, county circuit judges in Alabama gave an example saying that convicted felons can't have a cosmetology license, even though they are taught cosmetology in prison. Judge David Kimberly supports the new law and said as a judge many times, he had to recommit people to prison after they reoffended. And he said the genius of that a lot of times is not their lack of good intention when they first got out, but the lack of opportunity. 
If you stay employed, you have a tendency not to reoffend. You're supporting your family. You're paying your child support. You're paying your taxes. Under the new law, if a former inmate is denied an occupational license, it allows a person convicted of a felony or misdemeanor to petition the court to review the matter. And then the court can provide a certificate to the specific licensure board who would need to review the former inmate's qualifications and make a detailed decision as to whether he or she should be licensed. But the board would have the final say. Anything we can do to remove arbitrary barriers and regulations in order to make that easier is something we should do, says England. And while I don't disagree, I would definitely want to take it one step further. Why not do away with occupational licensing generally? Oh, I hear the gasps of concern. Brian, why, you know, we'd, we'd all die from exploding appliances and sawbones doctors who did malpractice. Would we? Every time I hear that, it just reflects to me and whoever is saying that we've got to have these licensure laws. Otherwise, someone will take advantage. Someone will get hurt. And I think, you know, that's uh, that's some pretty strong faith in the civic religion of the state. I don't know why we don't just come out and call statism a, uh, a religion. Because there are a lot of people who sincerely believe, well, if it's not under the control of the state, by definition, it's out of control. But if you think about the number of occupations that a person could work in that required some kind of professional licensure, and I'm talking even 30 years ago, much less 50 or 70 years ago, it's an astonishing number of things. You know, they mentioned cosmetology in the the newspaper article here. I think back about the, the young girl in Utah here several years ago who immigrated immigrated here from Africa. She came and uh, as a, a sideline, she just wanted to braid hair. She had learned a particular form of African hair braiding that was very beautiful, and she wanted to be able to do that for her neighbors. Now they were going to pay her for it. It's like, oh, cool. But unfortunately, the state of Utah was like, well, not without a cosmetology license. Okay, well, what would it take to get that? 2,200 hours of study. Oh, and she has to pay for that schooling herself just to get a license to do something that, uh, you know, involves no chemicals, involves nothing that, that could possibly harm someone. Where did that mindset come from? I thought, I thought we were supposed to eat by the sweat of our brow. That's like a biblical command. God told us, look, you got to eat. You got to work if you want to eat. But we've transferred our allegiance to a uh, false god called the state. And only with that god's blessing can we be considered worthy to go out and work. Something's terribly wrong with that picture. credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.